Any of our youngest children who'd like to go to Stepping Stones, you're dismissed at this time. Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. First Corinthians 14 this morning, we will begin with verse 13 and read through verse 25. First Corinthians 14 verses 13 through 25. Please give God's word your very careful attention. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, If you can give thanks with with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by the people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, and the secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. I was at our presbytery meeting yesterday in York, And one of my fellow pastors from our presbytery uh, was speaking about uh, the book of 1st and 2nd Samuel, the books of 1st and 2nd Samuel, and he made an interesting comment. He said, the most important theological statements that are made in the books of 1st and 2nd Samuel are made by women. I just, I puzzled about that, I thought about that. He, he mentioned Hannah, he mentioned Abigail as examples. And I thought, I'll have to check him on that later. And I haven't had time to do that since yesterday, so I'm not sure, I, I'll take his word for it. But the most important theological statements in the books of First and Second Samuel were made by women. And it just made me reflect on the fact that in spite of the scriptures being written in the midst of cultures that were sinfully anti-women in many ways, 
In the scriptures, you see again and again and again God elevating the status of women by the way in which he interacts with them, and particularly Jesus and the way that he interacted with women. And so that comment that was made yesterday really stuck out to me because all week this week I've been thinking about worship. And as I think about 1 Corinthians 14, I'm reminded that probably the most profound statement that Jesus ever made while he was on earth about the most important subject of worship was made to a woman. The statement that he made to the Samaritan woman he met at the well when he said to her that the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Jesus was just sharing himself with this woman and he was engaging her in a conversation about confronting her with her sinful lifestyle. And here she was, not just a Samaritan woman, but she was a promiscuous Samaritan woman, and yet he makes his most important statement about the nature of worship to her when she tries to bring up the issue of worship to distract him from the issue of her sin. Scholars debate about that statement. When Jesus said that true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth, what does he mean by spirit? Does he mean spirit with a capital S, as in the Holy Spirit, that true worshipers will worship in the Holy Spirit and in truth, and certainly that would be true if that's what he meant, but by far most scholars really believe that he meant in our little s spirit, our spirit, not the Holy Spirit, but our spirit, what we would call our soul. We are created as body and soul, and he's saying that, that worship happens when in our spirit, in our spiritual nature, in our soul, we receive revelation from God, truth from God. That that's the characteristic of true worship. The soul is part of who we are. We are both body and soul, but when we talk about worship, the focus is, and Jesus is saying, it's not about where you worship, where your body is geographically. It's really where your spirit is, where your soul is as you enter into worship. And when the Bible talks about our soul, it talks about two aspects of our soul usually. It talks about our heart, which is when the Bible is talking about our passions, our desires, our pleasures, our will, our personalities, our heart. But then the other aspect of our soul is our mind, the way we think, our worldview, our theology, our rationality. And so if we are to worship, Jesus says, we are to worship with the truth that's revealed from God, being engaged with our mind and our heart, the whole of our soul. Well, here in 1 Corinthians 14, as we've been working our way through this really difficult chapter, Paul is dealing with the issue of worship. There was a serious problem in the worship in Corinth. The worship services there had become chaotic and disorderly to the point that they were detrimental to the spiritual health of the church. What a terrible thing when the worship of, a, of an individual church becomes so out of line with what God intends worship to be, that it actually 
the most important thing that the church does actually becomes detrimental to its spiritual health. And that's what was happening in Corinth. This is not some small issue that Paul's dealing with. And as we saw back in chapter 12 and in the beginning of chapter 14, the problem was that there were people back in the first century when the gift of speaking in an unlearned language, the ability to speak in a language you never learned, this miraculous gift was given to the church from the day of Pentecost until the time the apostles was done and the scriptures were complete. While that was operating, these people were so infatuated, so enamored with this miraculous ability given to some of them to speak in unlearned languages that it was actually distracting them from worship. And you had people, it appears from what we read in chapter 14, that were standing up and speaking in tongues without it being translated, either by the speaker or anybody else who may have had the gift of translating that unlearned language. And so they heard expressions of prayer, they heard expressions of praise, but nobody understood what was being said. And it was leading to chaotic worship and an even deeper problem at the root of it is it was driven by pride because they felt that this miraculous ability to speak in an unlearned language was a sign of being among the spiritually elite. It was being used wrongly and it was being used motivated by pride and it was detrimental to the church. And so Paul in this section is saying you need, if you want to seek after a gift, I mean, the Holy Spirit gives gifts to whoever he wills. He does that sovereignly. But if you want to seek a gift, he's saying, seek prophecy. Seek the ability to boldly, clearly, in languages that people can understand, the truth of the word of God. So he's making a strong stand in this chapter that truth is central to worship. That you can't have a true spiritual experience of an encounter with God unless truth is clearly proclaimed and received and understood and responded to. Now, one of the difficulties of studying 1 Corinthians 14 is that the situation in, in Corinth was unique because of this miraculous gift that was going on. But what I've been struck by as we've been working through it and studying it is how relevant it is to today. Even though we don't speak in tongues in our worship services, the issue of worshiping both in spirit and in truth, in our mind and our heart, as well as in truth, is still a crucial issue in every church today. Is your worship characterized by clear declaration of truth, or is it characterized by passion? by spiritual experience. And what Paul is trying to say is the same thing that Jesus is saying, is that it needs to be both. True worshipers worship in both their spirit and with truth. Both elements are necessary. And what was going on in Corinth is that by speaking in tongues without those tongues being translated, truth was missing. And so, yes, they may have been having genuine spiritual experiences in their worship, but it was not based in truth. They were separating the mind and the heart. I remember having a a friend in seminary. I went to 
a small seminary in Pittsburgh that's made up of conservative, reformed, and Presbyterian types, and we tend to be kind of white middle-class Americans in, in those kinds of seminaries, but we had a few guys that would come to seminary because the scriptures were held in high regard there, so you'd have some guys come to seminary there that were from other church traditions, other types of churches, and there was, we had one token charismatic guy, one Pentecostal guy at, the, at the, my seminary, and we got to be good friends. And we would talk about our differences, particularly in relation to worship. But he said something to me one day that stuck with me every day, ever since that day. He said, you know what? You know, as he's been, he'd been in our classes at seminary and had got, been, taught and really, been taught really good, solid theology. He said to me, you know, I would love to find a church one day where we had the heat of my church and the light of your church together. Why can't we have a church where we have the passion of my charismatic Pentecostal church, the spiritual experience that we have, at the same time having the kind of profound biblical theology being proclaimed from the pulpit like you have in your churches? And I've thought about that a lot, that that's really what Jesus is getting at, I think. True worshipers worship in spirit and in truth. Paul is talking about how powerful that worship can be. And he's, even though he's saying a lot of negative things here in chapter 14, I think he's saying three things that are very positive about true worship that is in spirit and truth. First of all, he's saying that worship in mind and spirit has a unifying effect upon the church. Secondly, worship in spirit and truth or worship in mind and spirit is, uh, has a maturing effect upon the church and Worship in mind and spirit has an evangelistic effect. So that's what I want to look at this morning. First of all, the unifying effect of worship that addresses both the mind and the spirit. He first about talks about a unifying effect on the person. He's going to be talking about the effect on the church because this is all about building up the church. But it's interesting, he talks about the unifying effect upon the individual believer. Look at verses 13 and 14. He says, if I were to pray in tongue, whether publicly or privately, without it being translated, in other words, with, if I were to speak in some unlearned language where even he doesn't understand what he's saying, and there's no one there to translate it, he says, if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. Again, it separates the mind from the heart. He's having a spiritual experience, but without any message, intelligible message from God in that experience, it's useless to his mind. And once that spiritual experience is over, there's nothing left. And that describes a lot of worship, unfortunately. It's like when you're really, really hungry eating cotton candy. I mean, what does that do for your real hunger? If you eat something light and sweet like that, it has no substance to it. That's what a spiritual experience is like without truth to feed the mind. An encounter with God through his truth. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus warned us against heaping up empty phrases like the Gentiles do. God is not impressed if you use empty phrases in prayer or worship to him. That's what Jesus was saying. And then Jesus goes on to teach his disciples how to pray, and he gave them the Lord's Prayer, which is 
a, an outline for prayer that is profound in its theological, biblical content to help us prioritize, to help us organize our thoughts. Now, we may look down our nose or in judgment against other churches that don't have much truth in their worship services, that they focus so much on the experience, the spiritual experience of an encounter with God, but there's not much truth in the service itself, and that is definitely wrong. But just because you have a lot of truth in the service doesn't mean that you're actually worshiping, that your mind and your soul, your mind and your heart are engaged. Jesus said in his day that there were many who praised him with his lips, but their heart was far from him. And that still happens in our churches often. It's probably happened in this room today that people, some of you, have praised with your lips, but your heart was far from God. This is something I would encourage you, just something practical to think about, a way in which you can be more prepared to worship. Get yourself physically ready to worship, but take just a portion of that time that it takes to get physically ready to worship and geographically in the place where you worship. Take just a portion of that time. Get here 10 minutes early. Take the bulletin. Read the scripture passages that we'll be reading in the service. Read through them and think about the content. Pick up the hymnal and read the lyrics to the hymns or the songs that we're going to be singing in worship. And think about what you're, they're saying. I guarantee if you engage your mind in preparation to worship, you will have a more profound encounter with God in the worship service. You can't expect to come in at the last minute now, I know some of you are going to say, I watch you. You come in at the last minute every time, right before the service. I have the advantage. I have the bulletin for days before you get it. I, I already have my opportunity to do that. But I would encourage you to get here just a few minutes early so that you can look at the biblical content and the, the biblical content of the hymns and songs so that when you sing, your heart and your mind are engaged. And I guarantee it will enhance your worship experience. Because Jesus says that true worshipers worship in both heart and mind. But of course, in this context of 1 Corinthians 14, the emphasis is not upon building up yourself, but upon building up each other. Remember, that's why we had chapter 13 in between chapters 12 and 14. It's because the emphasis is on loving one another. That when we worship, that's a very important, that's why we all come together to worship. We don't worship in our homes alone. We come together to worship because it's about building up one another. And so in verse 16, Paul talks about this corporate unity that worship in spirit and truth brings. He says, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone, in the, and again, he's saying, speaking in tongues with no interpretation, no translation, so there's no mind engaged, there's no truth being communicated. He says, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he doesn't know what you're saying? The word outsider there literally in the Greek means one who's uninformed or one who's unenlightened. Now he may just mean simply he's unenlightened because he doesn't know what you're saying because you're praying or praising in a tongue that he doesn't understand. Or he may just be trying to refer to somebody who is visiting, who's seeking, who wants to know the truth. He's saying if you're, if you're all praying and praising in tongues, that person cannot agree with you. He cannot hear and understand and agree with you and say, amen. Amen, saying amen, 
this is maybe hard for you to hear as Presbyterians, but saying amen is an important part of worship. It's scriptural. The Psalms tell us to say amen to the truth that is proclaimed in a worship service. The word amen means so be it, or so let it be. It me- thank you. <laughs> it means I wholeheartedly agree with the truth of God that has just been declared. That's what it means. And it is important for you as worshipers to say that certainly in your hearts, but the scriptures lay out a pattern for us to say it with our mouths as well. It's confession of your faith. It's hearing the truth and saying, I agree with that truth. Richard tries to teach you every Sunday morning to say it, and you will only do it when he tells you to do it. (laughs) But I think if we really could get over our fear of man and follow the pattern of Scripture more completely, there would be a lot more expression of agreement to the truth that's being proclaimed from the people of God. Now, I admit there are churches where it's overdone where people say it mindlessly because that's the culture and tradition as you say it every time you pause. And I often wonder if preachers in those traditions sometimes say things that are outright wrong just to see if people say it because he left a pause at the right moment. But, you know, that, that's, that's where it's done mindlessly. See, the point is, is that in your mind and your heart, you're wholeheartedly agreeing with the truth that's proclaimed. And so really, as we've said many times, our worship service is meant to be a dialogue between God and you, his people. God speaks to you, and you respond in praise. God speaks to you, and you respond in prayer. God speaks to you, and you respond in giving your offering. God speaks to you, and you respond by saying, amen. I wholeheartedly agree with this truth. I receive it. In verses 18 and 19, Paul makes it clear that he's not intending to disparage speaking in tongues. Speaking in tongues was a gift given by the Holy Spirit in the first century. It's a good gift. Matter of fact, he says, I've spoken in tongues more than any of you. But, he says, I don't do it in worship. I don't do it without a translation. He says, I would rather speak five words, five words, with my mind, in other words, in his typical Greek language that everybody would understand, he would rather speak five intelligible words than 10,000 words in a tongue that nobody can understand. The word 10,000 there is the word, it's literally the word we get from Greek, the word myriad. It's the largest number in in the Greek, the ancient Greek uh, language. And so 10,000, actually it just means, it means innumerable, countless. All the words in the world aren't worth five words that are clearly understood, is what he's saying. Proclaiming God's word clearly unites and builds up the church. Whereas untranslated tongues divided the church in Corinth and alienated those who came seeking to know truth. I had just a, a weird example, even though we don't speak in tongues in our churches, I had Kind of an odd example of this happening in my ministry when we were in Philadelphia. In the church there, around the year 2000, there was a big influx of immigrants from South Africa. 
Dutch Reformed Afrikaners began worshiping with our church. At one point, we had 40% of our church was made up of South African people that had come over to do computer consulting in our area. And it changed all the dynamics of the church in many ways, very positive ways. They were many of the wonderful Christians, very great help to our church. But one thing that we discovered over time is that they were new to our country, had never been to our country before. So when they came to worship on Sunday morning, very naturally, they'd cluster together and, and talk in Afrikaans, their, their native language, because they're so happy to be among their countrymen. And they took great comfort and great joy to being able to see each other on Sunday morning. And we realized that was having a very detrimental church effect on our church because they were excluding themselves by speaking a language that the rest of the congregation didn't understand. They were excluding themselves from the fellowship of the church. And so thankfully there were some godly mature leaders among that group that we spoke to about it and they began talking to their people and we began to fix that problem. But again, it wasn't speaking in tongues like Paul's dealing with, but it's the same effect. That it's agreement in the word of God that unites us and builds up the church. And so we need to be able to speak the word of God clearly to one another. Secondly, Paul said, talks about the maturing effect when we worship in spirit and in truth, in mind and spirit. Look at verse 20. And verse 20 must have been very painful for these Corinthian Christians to hear. It must have been shocking to them because keep in mind, they think that the gift of speaking in tongues was a sign that they were spiritually mature, that they were spiritually elite. And they, they, they all were striving to be able to have that gift of the Spirit. That's what they wanted because they thought those were the special Christians. And Jesus talks to these Christians who are using the gift of tongues in the wrong way, and he says, brothers, do not be children in your thinking. They thought they were spiritually mature or elite, and he says, you're being childish. You're showing your immaturity. It's not easy to have somebody say you're acting in a childish manner. But remember what Paul has been saying about the gifts of the Spirit in all three of these chapters. He's been saying the gifts of the Spirit are tools, powerful tools, that are placed in the hands of believers to do the work of the kingdom. And having a tool does not make you mature. Just like giving a power drill to a toddler doesn't make that toddler mature, just makes them dangerous. That's what giving a spiritual gift to an immature Christian is. It's a powerful tool, but in the hands of somebody who's immature, it's dangerous. Paul is saying you're acting like a bunch of middle schoolers. You're all fascinated that you can make a bunch of strange noises come out of your mouth. That's what middle schoolers do. They like to make body noises. These people are making language noises, but it's all noise. And it's childish. It's immature. Grow up, he says. He goes on to say, be infants in evil. In regard to sin and evil, be, be infants. He said, in other words, be uninformed, be inexperienced in regard to the ways of evil and the ways of sin. But in your thinking, be mature. You see, Paul had said over that classic chapter over in uh, First Corinthians, I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter four. Paul's talking about how the church grows. This glorious chapter of how God gives gifts. Jesus purchased gifts through His atonement, through His resurrection. He purchased gifts to give to the church. These are the gifts of the Spirit, both the leaders of the church and the gifts of the Spirit to grow the church. But listen carefully to how He says that growth happens. 
Beginning in verse 15 of Ephesians 4, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when it, each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The process begins with the speaking of the truth in love for one another. And that creates maturity. That's the kind of maturity that Paul is calling upon the Corinthians to show in their worship services. As he describes it over in chapter 5 of Ephesians, he says, Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Truth and heart, spirit and mind together. And this brings him to the evangelistic effect of true worship that's in spirit and truth, mind and spirit. Verse 21 there he gives a loose quote of something that God said through Isaiah to Israel back in Isaiah chapter 28. In the context of Isaiah 28, the priests and the prophets in Israel are rejecting the word of God that Isaiah was sent to bring to them. They're rejecting the word of God and they're even ridiculing Isaiah, God's prophet. And so this is a, a horrific rejection of the word of God. That's the context. And so God says to the leadership of Israel and to Israel in general, he says, if you won't listen to my clear and plain words that I'm giving you through my prophet Isaiah, then I'm going to speak to you in a language that you don't understand. And what he meant by that is that he was about to send the great Assyrian army against Jerusalem, against uh, Samaria, to destroy the city to destroy the country and to take the people away into captivity. He said, you are rejecting my word to you, so you're going to hear words and I'm going to speak to you in a language and you won't understand what's being said. It was a sign of judgment. God was going to judge his people. Judgment from God looks like that. That's a consistent message in scripture. If you're not going to listen to God's word, he will remove it from you and you will become spiritually deaf and hard-hearted. The words of God will become gibberish to you. And Paul is saying to the Corinthian Christians, and you're speaking gibberish in your worship services. Words that nobody understands. That's a sign of God's judgment, not a sign of God's blessing. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, all the way back at the time of Moses, God had already said to Israel, he promised them if they rejected his word, this is what would happen. He says, all these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you until you're destroyed because you did not obey the voice of the Lord, your God, to keep his commandments and his statutes that he commanded you. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like the eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand. When God speaks to you in languages that you don't understand, that's a sign of judgment upon those who won't accept his word when it's clearly spoken. That's what Paul means when he says in verse 22, thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. And I think in order to understand why this miraculous gift of speaking unlearned, unlearned languages was given to, to the church for a brief period of time, during the time of the apostles, why was it a given? Well, here Paul is given the, the bottom line answer. It was given as a sign to unbelievers, not to believers. It's a message to those 
who have rejected the word of God. Think about it in terms of, the, of Pentecost, the day of Pentecost, when tongues of fire descended upon the early church, this small group of the first disciples, and they began speaking in languages that they had never learned, and everybody, people there, Jews from every country, speaking every language in the, in, in the uh, Roman Empire, heard the great works of God being spoken about in their own language. There was a huge sign to unbelieving Israel and to the nations in that event. The sign is that God is turning from Israel as the expression of his kingdom, and the kingdom is now going to spread to all nations. Palmer Robertson describes it in this way. He says, the speaking in tongues that took place at Pentecost represent the taking of the kingdom away from Israel and the giving of the kingdom to men of all nations. No longer will God confine himself to one people speaking a single language. Even on the day of Pentecost, it was a sign of blessing to the nations in a sense that now the gospel would go to them in their own languages, but it was a sign against the unbelief of Israel because they had rejected their Messiah, they had rejected the gospel of God. It's a sign of judgment against unbelief, but a sign of hope to those of the nations who will believe. To use speaking in tongues in this meaningless, self-centered, prideful way that the Corinthian Christians were using it, to boast before other believers about how special they were, to use it in that way was a mockery of the profound gospel meaning of the speaking in tongues in the day of Pentecost. Paul goes on to say, while prophecy, what he's advocating that they strive for, while prophecy, the clear proclamation of God's word, is a sign not for unbelievers but for believers. What's interesting in that part of the sentence is that the word sign is not there in the original Greek. That's added. That's an interpretive addition that the, trans that the uh, translators put in the ESV. The word sign isn't there, and I don't think it should be there because I don't think Paul is trying to say that prophecy is a sign. I think he was saying that the gift of tongues was a sign, but that prophecy is God speaking to his people. It's not a sign. It's a gift. It's God the Father speaking to his children. That's what prophecy is. That's why it's so much more important. And then at the end of the, at the end of this section, verses 23 to 25, Paul asks the Corinthians to imagine two different worship services. One that looks a lot like the one in Corinth, and one that looks like the kind that Jesus talked about, which is in spirit and truth. First of all, he says, imagine a worship service, he said this ought to be familiar to you Corinthians, where everyone, not just a few, and of course in there is only a few of them that had that gift, but imagine everyone had the gift of speaking in tongues in Corinth, but no one was translating it, no one was interpreting it. What would an outsider, and by outsider again, he means somebody who's uninformed, unenlightened, somebody who comes in from the outside, who witnesses everybody speaking in all these different languages in a chaotic way and not a word of it is understood. What would they think about the church? Paul answers the question. He says, he, they would think you're out of your minds. These people, they may, they may think they're demon-possessed. I mean, what, what do you, how do you explain something like that? I don't know if you've seen it, but Morgan Freeman, who is an actor that I do respect very much as an actor, but he's a terrible theologian. He's been doing a show lately called The Story of God. 
on cable network, one of the cable networks. And I tuned in for just one show just to see what it was like. I didn't have high expectations and I was not disappointed. But in the show, he actually, the reason I, he, I kept watching is he actually went to visit a Pentecostal service. He introduced a woman who had this, this supposed modern gift of speaking in tongues. And so he wanted to go to one of her services to see this in operation. And, and it's interesting when they showed film of the worship service in this Pentecostal church, it looked a lot like what I think the church in Corinth must have looked like because you had people shouting and speaking and, and, and everybody speaking in some kind of language. And of course, they don't, they don't even try to say it's some known language, it's some gibberish language. And everybody's speaking all at the same time. It's all chaotic, it's all a mess. Nothing discernible is being said. And he, they're filming this and then they show an interview where Morgan Freeman's talking to the woman after the service and talking about what a profound experience this is and everything. And then he makes a statement about how this, you know, he's seen this in other religions, this kind of thing in other religions. And then he uses that to say, see how there are many ways to get to God. And the woman agreed with him. I thought, what a great example of what Paul's talking about here in 1 Corinthians 14. No concern for truth and having only concern for some kind of emotional, spiritual experience. It's the word of God that creates worship in the heart of a believer. We encounter God in worship through the proclamation of his word. So Paul goes on to say, imagine instead a worship service where everybody is prophesying. Everybody's prophesying. You're, the word of God is being clearly proclaimed in your own language so that you understand everything's being said. And of course, as we'll see at the end of the chapter, everything's done decently in order, so you don't have them all speaking at the same time, but they're all in sequence speaking God's word, so the service is full of God's word being spoken to God's people. What would happen with an outsider, an uninformed, an unenlightened person who visits at that point? He says, Here what will, here's what will happen. He'll be convicted by all. This is assuming that the spirit is at work in the heart of the outsider. He is convicted by all, he's called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. The evangelistic effect of worship in spirit and truth. I had a big debate 20, 30 years ago about seeker-sensitive worship, and people in our circles didn't like the word seeker-sensitive worship, and we always say that's not the kind of worship we want to do. Actually, I don't have a problem with the terms. I think our worship should be seeker-sensitive. I think Paul's given us an example of seeker-sensitive worship here, where we're sensitive to the fact that we're going to have people who are drawn, wanting to know truth, being drawn by the Spirit. They're going to come. People who visit you know, Oakwood, they don't come to our small groups first. They come to our worship first, and they're going to witness our worship. And we should be sensitive to the fact that outsiders may be witnessing our worship. I don't have a problem with seeker-sensitive worship. What I have a problem with is seeker-centered worship. Or you forget that this is a dialogue between God and his people. But we should always be sensitive to the fact, like Paul says here, that our worship is a powerful witness to the world around us. And why is it a powerful witness? Because the word of God is clearly declared. On the day of Pentecost, the disciples were given the miraculous gift to speak in unlearned tongues. But then Peter got up and speak in a known, spoke in the known tongue and he preached the word of God powerfully. And at the end of it, what did the people say? It says that they were cut to the heart and they said, brothers, what shall we do? Tell us what to believe. Tell us what we need to do. 
We want to know this God that you're talking about. It's exactly what Paul's describing here. Hebrews 4, verses 12 and 13, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. When the word of this God is proclaimed, the spirit of God drives it deep into the heart of a seeker, and they bow before God, their sins are exposed, and they cry out to God for mercy, and they declare about a church that worships in spirit and truth, surely God is among you. That's worship in spirit and in truth. And it is my prayer every week that that's what you will all experience here at Oakwood Presbyterian Church. I want that to be the reputation of this body of believers in this town, in this community. Surely God is among those people because worship happens in spirit and in truth in that place. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. These are difficult passages that we're working through, but we thank you that we have your spirit, and we thank you that you are patient with us as we learn what it means to worship in spirit and truth. Father, I pray that your word would always be clearly proclaimed from this pulpit in our classes, in our Bible studies. I pray that our people would always be saying amen to the truth of what you have revealed. And I pray that in our spirits, in our souls, in our hearts, we would be transformed through the renewing of our minds. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Let's take our hymnals and close our service by singing hymn number 22. Oh, that I had a thousand voices, hymn number 22. Let's stand as we sing. Mm -hmm.